brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Rep Radio, on time, on target, back on with us is a favorite of the site, and he's also back with the site, Jamie Reed, a.k.a. Jay, who I've referred to as Jay from the UK on the podcast before, British Army Reconnaissance Specialist who went on to work in close protection, or I should say as a close protection officer and surveillance specialist in the UK. And from what I've seen, man, a lot of people are glad to have you back on board and writing new articles yeah. uh, at the site. You're a favorite there. We've had Jamie reporting with us from uh, a number of different countries, Ukraine, Somalia. Um, we've He's talked about his time in Iraq, in Syria. So, I mean, he's definitely gotten around and, and you know, has a pretty unique perspective on some of these issues. Yeah, I mean... What can I say, Jack? I'm a busy, I'm a busy man. As, uh, <laughs> as, as, some, as some would say, I do like to travel to all these wonderful places. But yeah, I mean, I've been, a, I've been around, been around now for a long time, since 2014. So it's been good. It's been a fun ride so far. Well, I'll give Jay credit because if it wasn't for him, I would be kind of lazy. As you're hearing this the day after Christmas, and I was originally saying to Jack, I'll make a best of. We'll put that out. And Jay has been on me that, you know, he's like, I want to do a show talking about Ukraine, what's going on, because you've been writing a lot about it. So, um, yeah, I mean, we have so many um, people who like to come on the podcasts and there's so much happening in the world that, I mean, there's just no shortage of um, content, so to speak. Um, You know, so we might as well just put a few on tap and, you know, so that people have an original uh, new episode to listen to over the holidays. So even though um, this is, you know, being recorded before Christmas, uh, you're hearing it after. So hope you guys all enjoyed your holidays in general. And they're all over now. Um, and why we, because we can't say Merry Christmas, Ian. No, well, Hanukkah has been over <laughs> technically. I don't know about Kwanzaa. What day? I don't know which days are Kwanzaa or how many people in the audience even celebrate. You heard Kwanzaa. it here first folks. Ian's trying to take the Christ <laughs> out of Christmas. Um, but yeah, no, I hope you guys all enjoyed your Christmas or whatever you're celebrating. I personally, I don't care, but I hope you enjoyed it. And, and thanks yeah, to Jay. Absolutely. You're getting a live episode, you know, and, and especially I do try to point out you guys who are overseas, who are downrange who don't get to experience Christmas Christmas with your families. Yep. I, I don't know what that's like. I'm sure you do know what that's like. I mean, I uh, I was very, very lucky when I think about it. My entire time in the military, I think I only missed one Christmas away from my family, 
which is incredible. Yeah. I mean, considering I was in, you know, just about eight years. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess I was, I was privileged. I was lucky in that sense that, you know, I, I almost always got to go home for Christmas. Um, so many other soldiers out there, they, um, they're deployed over Christmas, over Thanksgiving. They miss the birth of their children. They miss, um, their children's birthdays. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just I, sucks. yeah, it, it yeah. just sucks being deployed at Christmas. I spent last Christmas, uh, even though it was contracting, but I was, uh, stuck out in Iraq last Christmas. Um, you know, you do miss a lot. You miss your kids for those that are, for those that have kids anyways. You know, you, you miss a lot of time with your kids. And for me personally, this year, I'm getting deployed the day after Christmas and I'll be missing my little girl going to school for the first time, which is not mm. something that any dad would like to miss, but it's part and parcel with the job. Yeah, um, it's rough. And I uh, there's got to be something about being in uh, southern Iraq where there's not quite the pine trees and the snow that you associate with Christmas. Yeah, no, definitely it is. I mean, I've seen some lads up in the north there. They, Baghdad seems to be do, do better, at least the hotels and, and majority of the bases and camps up there at least seem to decorate. Down in southern Basra, you know, it's just it's just all desert. Yeah. <laughs> it's, well, not, it's not very Christmassy, you know, and um, it's just... Life just goes on down there, you know, before you know it, the day is over. Nobody really does too well to celebrate it down in Southern Bazano. So that means as people are hearing this, Jay is, uh, you know, working hard out there. And uh, that's when this will be up. But I, we want to get into basically you've been doing a lot of coverage on Ukraine. The latest article up on NewsRep, which once again for people is thenewsrep.com. That's our current news site. Uh, is titled Ukraine Timeline of Events and What Russia Has been, Really Been Up To Since 2014. And if you look through the article, which I'll post in the article up on softrepradio.com for this episode, uh, it gives a full timeline of, of things that happened each year since 2014. And I think it does a really good job. So uh, let's get into that latest article. I mean, so the timeline itself, like I say, I haven't, I haven't gone into the back end of what happened prior to 2014 you know, there is reports out there that suggest that even as early as 2010, Russia was meddling with the Donbass region, having guys go over, train with their paramilitary units and then send them back to the Donbass. And if you, if you would like, have a sleeper cell waiting there upon its call. But I just thought in light of what's happened, in light of all these recent events, people need to go back to its roots. And ideally, I think that's what the whole community the international community could do with just going back to its roots and identifying the issues. Did we miss, you know, some things back in 2014? Because that's ultimately what set this whole conflict off was the people themselves and the government itself at the time wanted to align itself with Russia, but the population felt as though they wanted to align themselves with the EU. Now, I think we got that whole scenario wrong. Um, I think we completely mis- misunderstood the relationship between Ukraine and Russia. I think we misunderstood how Russia would actually take this uh, this ouston of the old and in with the new, if you like. Um, and I think that's where we need to go back. And I think we still need to go back and, and have a look at those deeper issues and those deeper connections. And that might shed some light on 
on the current situation or at least how to fix the current conflict. Yeah, Jamie, I'd really like you to, you know, go into dive into that subject as far as what some of the drivers were for the the conflict kicking off in 2014. Um, I would only add that one element that precipitated all of this was um, our, well, not just us, but the American, French, and Italian uh, overthrow of Colonel Gaddafi in Libya, in which we assured uh, President Putin of Russia that we were not going to effect some sort of regime change there. And then when we went into Libya, that's basically what the game plan was from day one. Um, And the Russians were reportedly furious about this. And uh, I, I think that kind of at least played a part um, in as far as what happened in Ukraine a few years later. No, definitely. I mean, like I say, one of the things that I that I believe the West got terribly... I mean, the West has a part to play in this. We were kind of influencing meddling, if you like, in having Ukraine come over to the, the European Union. I believe the EU has a lot to answer for. I don't think it really understood just how close of a relationship the Ukrainian and Russian government mm-hmm. had. And I don't think the EU fully understood the implications by having a Ukrainian government align themselves with the West. What, what were the you know, implications? Well, I would say the implications are what we've seen. You know, this escalation of events from 2014, from the moment that oust the old government that aligned itself with Russia, Russia simply set off its proxies in Donbass, the annexation of Crimea, this latest incident on the Azov Sea. Um, you know, that whole escalation of events can be put down to, I think, the EU meddling in Ukraine long before 2014. You know, I don't think they fully understood by taking Ukraine away from, from Russia and disconnecting that government and having them align themselves with the West. I don't think they understood that Russia seen that as a major threat and a major kick and a major kick in the teeth, as I would like to say. Right. Um, and due to that, it's just off this escalation of events and this nonstop war or this frozen war, however you want to address it. And that is one of the, that is one of the main factors. I, I Russia think... was happy to have Ukraine as a partner, as long as it aligned itself with them. It was happy with the government. It might not have been the most progressive country in the world, but that's how they like it. And then by taking its neighbor away, if you like, it's just set off this escalation of events that started with the Maiden Revolution that went on to the Donbass Wars, that went on to the annexation of Crimea, that will that has gone on to the capture of these latest naval um, naval ships. They're gonna they've annexed pretty much annexed the Azov Sea off by now. Um, that will no doubt lead to future problems in Mariupol as that port can no longer run a function, a complete de- destabilization of the east of that country. I mean, it's you can kind of go on forever if you want. Yeah, I mean, I think that I don't know what the, the British perspective is because you guys are a little bit closer, of course. Um, but in America, I feel like there's real, we have a really difficult time understanding the conflict in Ukraine and um, it, the the notion that the United States would ever like invade Russia is something that to us is absurd. I mean, it's just something that would never happen. But from the mm-hmm. Russian perspective, they see uh, the United States via NATO 
uh, encircling their country. I mean, the, the comparison would be if Russia um, was occupying or otherwise forming some sort of strategic alliance with Canada, Mexico, uh, a bunch of states down in the Caribbean. I mean, that would make us nervous as hell. No, absolutely. And I remember, I remember reading this report that majority of the population inside of Russia do see the United States as a direct threat. And I mean, obviously, we can sit here and think, you know, why do they think that? Um, I guess that's what happens in these state-controlled, state-run, you know, countries. Yeah. They're obviously fed a lot of disinformation about uh, the United States. They fed a lot of disinformation about NATO and the West. And then also we're the same in terms of the Ukrainian conflict. I mean, you're right in what you say. The UK has no better understanding of what's happening in Ukraine than what the United States does. I was recently involved in advising some committees in the House of Lords here in the UK on their assessment of the Ukrainian conflict. And to be honest with you, it's shocking how much and how little information they actually know about the about the country, about the conflict, and about what this hybrid war actually looks like with Russia and what it really entails. So I think really we're disinformed on both sides. The Russians are disinformed about us and we're disinformed about them. Yeah, I think one of the... Um there, there's been like a simplification of the narrative, I think, by a lot of people about Ukraine, where they portray the conflict as being about Nazis versus communists, um, which is kind of hilarious uh, in a way. Um, but I was wondering if you could expand on, you know, what this conflict is really about. Who are the main players in East Ukraine and West Ukraine? Uh, what, what What's really going on over there? Well, I mean, so obviously the... The main opposing factor is, is Russia, and then you'll hear the press talk about the the DNR and the LNR. These are meant to be the proxies of Russia, these separatists. But I think, I think to be honest with you, I'd like to move beyond that statement of saying that they're separatists and not just call them Russians and, and let's just call the DNR military and the LNR military. Let's just call them the Russian military because that's what they are. You know, people keep using this term separatists or proxies. Yeah. And to be honest with you, it's no longer that. It maybe was back in the day. Absolutely. I think what you had was elements of the Russian military supporting, if you like, militias. But I would say at this stage, the conflict's been going on for four years. They're armed to the teeth. They're well-trained. They've got financing funding. You know, it doesn't take a genius to work out where that comes from. So down in, the, down in East Ukraine, it's as simple as this. To, to cut all the bullshit out of the way, you have the Russian military sitting, you know, 15, 20 kilometers that's meant to be a 15, 20 kilometers buffer zone between Ukrainian positions. That's not the reality. The reality is that it gets as close as 300 meters between Ukrainian positions and Russian positions. And that's what you have. I believe, if I'm honest, nobody's really, no one's seen a conflict like this before because it's such, it's such close proximity. People make it out like this. It's yet it's a vast stretch of land, but the actual conflict itself, like I say, it can be as close as a hundred meters in some places. You know, you've got Russian troops sitting in one trench, Ukrainian troops sitting in another trench. They're less than 100 metres apart. That's your two, your two main people that are involved in this conflict. There's no need to talk about all these other little entities that are kicking about. It is literally Ukrainians and the Russian army, that's it. 
And what's the, uh, I mean, the prognosis then? I mean, how, how is this thing going to evolve in the future? Is it just going to be, like you said, a, you know, a quote unquote, uh, frozen conflict is like one of the political science type terms that gets thrown around. I mean, is, is this thing just going to go on forever? Well, I mean, there's two, there's two real theories behind how the Ukrainian conflict can go. One is uh, they eventually retake the Donbass. Which is highly unlikely, as it's not that they don't lack. Um, they have the right capabilities, they have the right equipment, they have the right manpower. But unless you can put something on the Ukraine, the actual Ukrainian Russia border, by the way, unless you can actually put peacekeepers on it or a NATO force or a UN force to stop the Russians coming over and resupplying or intervening, that's never really going to happen. You could end up with a Transnistria in Ukraine, which right. is the other highly possible. That is a high possibility that this will go on, as you said, forever. And eventually the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian population will just lose taste of it. There'll be no more shooting, etc., and exchange of artillery fire and all that kind of good stuff. It will just be a, a state within, a sovereign state that's just allowed to exist. And people will just lose taste of it. And that's the only two options. The only two options I really see is to either have this all-out war for the Donbass again, and you put peacekeepers on the border, or it just turns into a, a failed, a failed state. I mean, do you think there's a, any yeah. realistic possibility that Ukraine is going to mount some sort of counterattack against really what what amounts to you know the Russian military and you know wherever it is, Donbass or Crimea or wherever? I mean, once once again, I would say no. I would say I'd say even the Ukrainian military know themselves but they couldn't keep an offensive of that size a secret. And without the support from UN troops or, or, or peacekeeping troops, you're not, it's not going to be effective. They're not going to be able to do anything. You know, it's not mm-hmm. like they can match themselves in there without the support from the West. And I believe that's what Poroshenko's latest attempts at all this, you know, martial law, which was just a complete joke when I heard it. <laughs> I was just laughing. You know, you, you've been at war for four years. Why declare it now? These latest screams from Poroshenko are ridiculous. If I'm honest. Well, why is he declaring martial law? Um, I think, if I'm honest, it's just to drum up a bit of interest in in his campaign. He wants to beef up his presidency. He wants to try and make it out like he's doing something, but it's too little, too late. Yeah. And that's it. That's the reality of that. He's not, he's not fit for Ukraine. And he is one of the... He has been, and if not, is one of the most important parts. You need to get rid of him if you want to move forward. Well, that's like been said, one of the, the main questions about Ukraine moving forward, isn't it? That there, there's a sort of endemic corruption throughout the Ukrainian government itself. Um, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Ukraine is incredibly corrupt. And I know they set up the Anti-Corruption Bureau and it's doing its best to deal with some of that. But the reality is um, it's a heavily, heavily corrupted place. You know, probably one of the most corrupt countries in the world. So you can only imagine what politics is like there. It's hard. Jeez. So, again, I'm just trying to probe your thoughts a little bit on, you know, how this is going to play out over the next couple of years. I mean, what do, what do you see happening there? Well, like I said, I have, I have two theories to what's really going to go down there. If we can indeed get rid of, say, Poroshenko, they remove Poroshenko, they get a government in. But Because ultimately, you can't go to war with Russia. You just can't. That's not going to end well for anybody that's involved. But ultimately, Ukraine is a sovereign country and it should be allowed 
to retake the Donbass region. Like that's the only way this can re- this can really work. I think Russia has to understand. Look, okay, you've got Crimea, and this is going to sound very drastic and very harsh. Let them have Crimea for now. Let the Ukrainian people take back the Donbass. Let them heal that area, and then let's focus on creating some sort of dialogue with the Moscow government. And maybe we can go forward from that. I don't believe military actions the way forward here, absolutely not. We're not dealing with, you know, a small terrorist group or a, a small organization. We're dealing with, with Russia, which is indeed a powerful enemy. You know, and there's huge political risk for any Western country to try and weigh into this mess. Because once again, you're not dealing with a group, you're dealing with a very powerful, very large country. So I think there has to be a win and a loss on both sides. Somebody has to win something and somebody has to lose something. It's the only way these two countries are ever going to, I would say, connect again, is if somebody wins something and somebody loses something. Do you see the OSCE as playing any role in that? Absolutely not. I mean, I think it's pretty clear on my thoughts on the OSCE, and I understand with all the right intentions that, that they are there. But once again, the OSCE is a complete monumental waste of time. You know, if you can only monitor one side of a conflict, then I fail to see what information they're bringing to whoever they're meant to be bringing it to. If all you can comment on is what the Ukrainians are doing, how does that help the Ukrainians? Can, can you guys give some what, what the Russians are doing? It's 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 backwards. Could could you guys give some background on on what the OSCE is? The OSCE is uh, basically it's an organization for Europe. It exists within it exists within Europe. It exists within the EU. And the idea is that these people go and monitor a conflict and are meant to be there as a buffer slash. Um, how can I put it? My mind's gone blank now. Um, mentally, there is like a deterrent, and they gotcha. comment on the conflict and let the EU and UN know, and let, let, basically let the rest of the world know what's happening with this conflict. And they try to de-escalate the situation. They report, and I think they believe they fall underneath the Minsk Agreement as well, you know, so that they can help political headsheds make the right decisions on what's really happening in East Ukraine. But like I say, you're only getting one half of the story. So I failed to see who they're advising. Gotcha. Who, you know, essentially they're just forward observers in a non-military role, reporting back on how many artillery strikes there's been, how many small arms engagements there's been, what's the movement of heavy weapons in the area, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they can only monitor the Ukrainians. <laughs> it's just a, it's just a monumental waste of time. Like, like I said, I really don't see why they're there. It's incredible to me um, that there are, it appears to be two separate standards being applied in the sense that, you know, say when the United States invaded Iraq in 2003, you had, you know, protests, you know, this is illegal under international law, the condemnations, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but then when you have Russia engaging in this uh, aggressive territory expansion, it's not to say that no one says anything about it, but the... It seems like the international community kind of shrugs at it and doesn't really care in a way that they um, get quite animated when the United States um, does something like that that they don't like. Yeah, I guess that's our, you know, that's our look on it and our perspective on it is that we only seen, for instance, 
the the American invasion of, of Iraq. We as Western as Westerners seen the Western media outlets comment on that. I can't honestly, I can't honestly say from an East point point of view um, how they viewed Russia's annexation of Crimea. I know that there are quite a few countries, Czech Republic, Poland, um, Estonia, Finland. They they do quite they do report on the Ukrainian conflict quite mm-hmm. a bit as it's close to them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, once again, Western outlets, you're right, didn't really kick up a fuss about it. There was a little bit in 2014. But then beyond that, it just sort of disappeared for a you know for a very long time. We just chose to forget about it. And I agree with you. It's like the Western the Western world just went, we're not really interested in that. But like you say, um, when they invaded Iraq, everybody kicks up a fuss. I don't know if when Russia invaded. Crimea and annex Crimea. If inside Russia there was a big fuss and a big kick up about it and process and much, probably not, due to the nature of the country and the way it's run. Um, but no, I agree with you. It just seems just seems to me that it's gone relatively unnoticed. I, I think there's also an aspect of it that you know the American public, the Western world, really, we've been propagandized pretty heavily since 9/11. Um, about the jihadist threat, the the Islamic terrorist threat. So I, I think we understand, um, you know, fighting jihadists in Afghanistan or the Taliban uh, or even fighting groups like ISIS. I think we can kind of wrap our minds around that. But then when it comes to these... Um, to to the younger generation today, um, you know, people who are say my age or younger, um, they start looking at a conflict in Ukraine um, where you have state powers fighting one another, or you look at what's happening in the South China Sea with the uh, Chinese government again uh, engaging in a aggressive territory expansion against sovereign states like the Philippines, and I, I think like psychologically, like we don't quite know what to do with that um, in a way that. Uh, Islamic terrorism is a readily identifiable threat, but threats emanating from Russia or China or something that I just feel like psychologically we, we have uh, some difficulty wrapping our minds around what's happening there. No, absolutely. And, you know, I agree with you. It's, it's one of those things. We've been so heavily focused on fighting this counterinsurgency campaigns. And like you said, it's been, so, it's been in the media from, from day dot even till now you know, Islamic terrorism, Islamic terrorism, Islam. and, you know, and we feel as though we can deal with that threat. But when we look at something like Russia, we don't know really how to deal with that. Yeah. Because we have, we have never really dealt with it before, you know, in modern times. And this is, this is another thing that people, you know, really misunderstand is just how complex the situation is in Ukraine in, from a military aspect. I mean, we've always fought wars in which we dominated the airspace. Yep. That's just one. We wouldn't dominate the airspace there. So, you know, forget your Apaches taking out, you know, little groups man miles away. That's, that's, that's not going to happen. And then the electronic measures as well, electronic measures and countermeasures that are in place down there, you know, that's something that we've not really came up against. That's sophisticated, you know. And we haven't came up against this, let's say, a conventional fight. There are equally trained men on the other side, you know, that have access to equally the same amount of kit that we have. You know, you name a piece of kit, they've got it. NGVs, thermals, drones. The artillery firepower alone is something that we've never had to deal with. So you've got all these things that we've never dealt with and we know are very, very lethal. And we, we have no experience of how to deal with it. And this is why I laugh when we always, when you see in mainstream media about the UK sending advisors to Ukraine or the US sending advisors to Ukraine. 
I mean, what are they advising on? Because our definitions and our manuals so far are all about counterinsurgency. You know, it, we're coming up against an entirely new threat. And especially, with, like you say, with the gauge of some of these guys, I mean, some of these younger guys that have been sent there as advisors, you know, that have maybe done one tour of Afghan or two tours of Afghan. And then that was towards the back end of the day because all the senior lads are getting out now as well. You know, all your older lads, between sergeant, sergeant majors, I mean, they're all leaving. They've all reached their 22 and done. So what do these guys know about fighting a conventional war? They know relatively little. So, you know, I feel to see what our advisors are going to do there as well. If anything, we should be going there and learning from the Ukrainians. That's what I think we should be doing. Taking lessons learned from uh, from the conflict starting in 2014 and applying that to see how we can adapt to that. Well, you know, for instance, I know one of the one of the last pieces was about sending British advisors down there to teach Ukrainians about trench warfare. I mean, as a former member of the British Army, we did a four-day exercise in which we spent in a trench. These Ukrainians have lived in trenches pretty much for four years. <laughs> we should be going down there and asking them how you deal with living in a trench, because it's grim. Yeah. And at all times of the year, it's grim, whether it's the winter, whether it's the summer. It's just grim. So what, what do we really know about trench warfare? I mean, they're the ones that are, they're the ones that have experienced it, that have a upteen amount of experience in it, not four days spent in, in Brecon or Salisbury Plains here in the UK, just chilling, firing blanks. These guys have been getting shelled to pieces for four years, you know, inside the trenches. If anything, we should be going down there and asking them, what's it like? I, you know? I totally agree. Um, it, it's, it's an important point because we send our special forces soldiers all over the world. And what we do is we try to train the local forces in accordance with, um, you know, our army infantry field manuals or the ranger handbook. And our doctrine is written, um, for the American military. It's, um, it's written with the idea of, uh, doing combined arms attacks where you have air support, where you have artillery, where you have this logistics train behind you. And when special forces goes into, uh, you know, a place in Africa or in the Middle East or wherever you're training, uh, locals who don't have access to all of that. So our tactics need to adapt to the local situation. Uh, like if you no. want to learn about guerrilla warfare, um, really what's the point of talking to an American special forces soldier? They Today's SF guys really know very little about guerrilla warfare. I mean, yes, they go through the Robin Sage exercise, but the average special forces soldier, the vast majority of them are, have been living on American forward operating bases where they have, uh, you know, the gym and the chow hall and all this stuff where they have, uh, you know, they can call on Apache gunships whenever they get into trouble. So if you want to learn about guerrilla warfare, you know, go talk to the Kurds. Uh, they know how to wage guerrilla warfare. Americans don't really do that. No, absolutely. And I think that's one of the, um, I mean, that was one of the, the Green Beret sort of main missions, wasn't it, back in the day, was to embed themselves in in yep. case the Ruskies came and done damage, and I thought that's what they could do. But then once again, they haven't been doing that, you know, to the best of my knowledge. They haven't been embedding themselves in this Ukrainian form conflict and, you know, living and breathing with these guys to see the realities of this conflict and how complex of a situation it is. And then coming back and saying, right, we need to have a specialized department focusing on this. That's not what they're doing. Because once again, we're still so heavily focused on terrorism, on yep. insurgency, on these small groups. And 
you know, this is what I mean about sending advisors to Ukraine. I just think from almost every aspect, useless. Because no matter what you implement, no matter how good your training, yes, you can you can have the standardization of a training, you know, so shooting tactics, teaching them all to do these wonderful things. But then when they get down to the front line and you're in one of the most heavily mined areas in the world, in close proximity of 100 to 300 meters, with all of the threats that I've just mentioned, artillery, night vision, equal forces, all that kind of good stuff, and the only thing you can really do is crouch down in a trench. All of that training and all of that wonderful, flashy stuff that we see is completely useless. Yep, that's why the, the training needs to be tailored to the partner force um, and, and, the, and the tactical situation that they find themselves in. Um, but on that note, I wanted to ask you about the news that's coming out. And um, we can, uh, well, I take it with a little bit of a grain of salt because this is about the third time it's been announced. But supposedly the Department of Defense um, under you know uh, the President Trump's orders is announcing the rapid withdrawal of all American forces from Syria. And, uh, and you and I actually met in Syria um, fairly early on in the war, Jamie. So I, I was wondering if I could kind of get your take on that. Um, once again, we're going we're gonna to be – are we pulling out too soon? Absolutely. Are there bigger powers that be there? Absolutely. Could Syria turn into an Afghanistan or even a recollapse like Iraq did? Absolutely. Um, I think pulling all forces out – was it by 2020 or was it by next year? Sorry. No, no. They're saying now. Like it is imminent. Ah, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, then, yeah, you're just leaving yourselves for a disaster. I mean, once again, we keep doing this to ourselves, don't we? You know, yeah. it's just history repeating itself in all aspects. You know, we pull out of Afghanistan early, it falls to pieces. We pull out of Iraq. We stop combat operations in Iraq. I believe the British did. We stopped combat operations in 2010, you know, and by 2014, the place had fell apart and was overrun by IS. So you go ahead, pull all your forces out. I mean, probably most likely the Brits will leave without you guys as well. Um, yeah, you're just letting yourselves in for a disaster all over again. And we just fail to learn. You know, we fail to learn from these little but large mistakes at the same time. You know, by him saying, yeah, we're going to pull out. Is that already, if that, if that hits the mainstream media and it's getting around and it goes on the channels, is that going to give IS, you know, are they, are they just going to do what the Taliban did and just dig in, wait it out, wait for everyone to leave? And then you just see a reinsurgence again. It's I don't know why we keep doing this. It's completely pointless. What I, I mean, I would point out is that, you know, we left, uh, withdrew from Iraq um, during the Obama administration. And um, we, we really pulled up stakes. I mean, we pulled up everything. We shut down all of our intelligence networks over there. I mean, it was a complete withdrawal. Uh, and then what, like two years later, we had to go back into Iraq to deal with ISIS. Um, so I, um, and then now in Syria, um, in, in Rojava and Kurdish Syria, you get into the issue also that America provides a, a, a sort of a buffer force, a, a strategic deterrent against Turkey. Uh, the country of Turkey to the north of Syria is never, ever going to accept a Kurdish state, um, on their Southern border. Um, because of their long-running fight with the PKK and other Kurdish insurgent groups. Um, so 
much like American American forces um, we have stationed in the Baltic states, it, it lets the in that case it lets the Russians know. Look, if you invade this country, you are going to be fighting America. Uh, the fact that we have Americans in Syria in northern Syria tells the Turks, listen, if you invade, you're going to be fighting America. Um, so don't fuck around. Um, it's not it's not just the Tur- it's not just the Turks in that area, Jack. I mean, we have to read about the Iranian influence as well. You know. And, um, and what part that'll have to play, particularly within the Iraqi part. You mm-hmm. know, the, Iran's got yeah. such, a, such an influence on the region. I mean, even as far as Basra, it has an influence. And uh, I'd be really worried if I was the Kurds. Yeah. Because all, all, all this really tells me is that they're in for a really, really hard time. Um, and like you said, no, they're never going to accept a sovereign state there. They're just not. I don't think the Iraqis will. I don't think the Syrian regime will. I don't think the Turks will. And the only peace of mind the Kurds have right now is that the American troops are there as that buffer. Once that goes, it will just be carnage again. Well, I think you um, you definitely hit on the ulterior motive for the United States um, sticking around, which is Iran. And I, I think that's like almost yes, it has been you know publicly announced like we're going to stay in Syria until the Iranians get out of Syria. Um, and so, I mean, we're, we're oscillating between these two positions. Like I said, it's, this is probably like the third time we've announced that we're, we're withdrawing from Syria. Um, if I just give my, my personal opinion about, you know, our presence there, I think that we have about 2000 people in Syria right now, 2000 soldiers, uh, for, to my mind, that's too many. I don't think that we should be, um, over there trying to establish like mega fobs like we we've done previously. I don't think we need a large footprint. Uh, I would look at keeping a special forces company, um, in Syria. So six ODAs, uh, those are that would be six 12 man special forces teams distributed across the area um, working with the Kurds. And I would keep them there until the Kurds, um, the PYD um, and the, you know, the, the SDF, the whole apparatus negotiates their reentry into the sovereign nation of Syria, which is going to take a while for the Syrian government to put that puzzle back together um, if it can ever even do it. But. I think that that would be, if it were up to me, that would be our strategic long game there would be, okay, we're sticking around until the Kurds negotiate their reentry into the Syrian country, into the Syrian state, and then we're going to withdraw out of the country. Um, I think the rapid no, I, withdrawal... I no, go ahead, Jamie. No, sorry. Um, I was just going to say, I absolutely, absolutely agree. I would leave... I would, I would actually... I would maybe put a bit more than a company in. Um, I don't know how you feel about um, special operations. I don't know if they've lost their heritage of conducting those small little operations. They, in the they absolutely say, have. You know, six teams. I don't know if that would be something that would be quite up to right now. So I'd maybe leave the likes of a ranger battalion there or at least have them close by or at least a company of rangers with them just to support them in the event shit does hit the fan. We've seen how small teams, particularly with that incident in Niger, you know, things can unravel pretty quickly. I believe they would need a bit more support there, absolutely. Um, I would definitely leave some ISR elements in there. You know, so we can just keep an eye on the situation, have those special operations teams there, but I'd have them pretty close together and I'd definitely have at least a light reaction force, such as the Rangers, close by, just so we didn't have any incidents like that of Niger. 
Yeah, some sort of QRF to have a you know some ass um, behind it to back things up. Um, I don't. Rangers don't necessarily go for the long term deployments, but I mean they have been over there, so um, rotating in and out, just small groups of them. Um, but yeah, I mean some sort of a, you know small footprint. I mean you're, you're right that special forces has kind of lost the heritage of that, you know, the whole idea of, you know, we're going to parachute a 12 man team behind enemy lines and you're going to link up with partisan forces and wage unconventional warfare. I mean, that's like a thing of the past now. I don't, I don't think people really, it, it's in the doctrine. It's, it's part of the mission, but as far as actually going and doing that, I just don't see it happening uh, today. That's, that's, that's the reality. We have lost the heritage of this. And there's no quarrel. I don't think in saying that. Um, due to due to the nature in which they've they've been used the last you know ten fifteen yeah. years, so I think leaving them on their own, kind of unsupported with this indigenous force, I, I think poses a huge risk to those that are there. But at some point, it has to be done as well in order for us to gain that experience. Yeah, you know, we can't keep shying away from the fact that we want to protect our guys that are deployed, and absolutely. Well, so they should. It's a it, it's definitely a, a cultural issue. Um, it's how things have changed over the course of the the global war on terror. Um, also, I, I mean, we've tried to mass produce special forces. We have r- pretty poor retention rates, um, which results in a very young force. So you have teams that are composed mostly of you know twenty two year old guys, um, and that kind of is what it is. Um, but it's a it's a far cry from back in the old days where you could deploy an ODA to uh, the Congo or to Pakistan and it would remain clandestine and secret. No one would ever know about it because we didn't have the Internet and uh, smartphones and everything else. Um, you know, back in the day, um, we had, uh, you know, like Special Forces Detachment A, which was in Berlin, and they were conducting espionage um, or, or preparing to conduct um, acts of sabotage against uh soviet occupied berlin uh <laughs> west berlin no, or east berlin i'm sorry not, it's not it's not just the special forces i mean even our you know intelligence apparatus has lost its ability to conduct human operations that's another thing yeah you know we look at the cold war and it was all spy games you know now you know it's just analysts you know we're getting you know people from the likes of afghanistan and you know, collecting sources as such and developing sources, which are just local civilians, and then relying on that information and then analyzing it and giving our best spiel on it. No one's really out there on the ground keeping an eye on things like what was done back in the day. Not nearly Sense enough. Special forces, you know, it's nowhere near enough. Um, so there's quite there's quite a lot of things that would need to change overall, military-wise, intelligence-wise. You know, like I said, the list goes on. As we move away from, I wouldn't say I wouldn't even say we're moving away from it. But as we go into this next ten or fifteen years, this is where I see it being interesting. How do we deal with this Russian conflict? How do we deal with these terrorist organisations? And I don't think we can solely rely on the you know the US special operations to deal with all of that. Mm-hmm. I don't think we can rely on the UK special operations. We don't have nowhere near enough manpower to to do anything so we have to start thinking outside of this old box that we've been in of of relying on the us relying on the uk relying on france and you know countries if i'm honest they need to start looking after themselves um which 
is hard given that we've put so much money into Afghanistan and, and those forces and, then, and they're not doing too great at the moment let's be honest um, it's hard to see how these next 10 or 15 years are really going to shape us and how, it, how it's going to work out for some of these countries that are suffering like Ukraine like Nigeria like Afghanistan and like Syria will undoubtedly do yeah, it's interesting to see uh, how, you know, the, the election of Donald Trump, I feel, felt like it was kind of like a shock to the world system in a way that all of a sudden all these countries start looking and they're like, oh, my God, America might not be there for us. And it's like, well, and, and not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, you know, people took America for granted. A lot of European countries were allowed to prosper under uh, an American security umbrella that was guaranteed to them by NATO. They didn't have to spend money on defense, so they were able to uh, you know, invest it in other places. Uh, and then suddenly there's this moment where they're like, oh, my God, they might not be there anymore. Well, absolutely. And, you know, nor should America, you know, have to continue with, with that strain. And that's not me sticking up for the, for the Yanks, as I call them. But, <laughs> you know, we shouldn't... <laughs> You know, the rest of the world can't sit there and rely on America's help every time just because that's how it was. You know, things changed, time changed, so should you. One of the uh, articles I read today was about Nigeria with their latest Boko Haram threat. I've literally just finished it off before speaking to you. And, you know, for the love of God, I can't understand why they can't deal with this Boko Haram threat. You know, they had steps internationally. They were doing really well. They made progressive steps within the region. They seemed to hinder, if not put a, a stop to Boko Haram at one point, only for the new presidency to come in and go, well, we don't need you guys anymore. Oh, the South and Africans. The yeah. And the reality behind that is because the American, America came in and says, look, we'll, we'll train you. Yep. You'll get it free. You're not having to pay any money. So That's exactly what happened. Well, it's exactly, exactly what it was. And the reality is, America doesn't have the manpower to, to, to do what Steps did. And nor can they afford to. You can't afford to have, you know, special forces soldiers dying in, in, in northern Nigeria. Well, and again, you know, so. again, you bring in Americans and they want to wage the American way of war. The South Africans, they know how to wage an African bush war. They get it. Is it um, African solutions to African problems? Yeah. I mean, you know, Steps were probably one of the you know, one of the organizations that you can honestly put your hand up and say they had it right. Yeah. You know, they got something right because they did indeed hinder Boko Haram's, you know, capabilities to operate in northern Nigeria. But once again, you know, the U.S. stepped in. No, we can handle this. We'll do this. And then you have a team of, you know, 12 special operation soldiers there and, you know, maybe a couple of others kicking about. Britain put some troops in there. I believe we've got 300 troops there at the moment. I believe we've got an element of the SRR, some of the Intel Corps there, some engineers and some artillery guys providing these training courses, if you like, at best. And then, you know, we kick them out into the Wild West. No mentoring phase whatsoever. Just you guys have had training, you know what you're going to be doing now. No, they don't. Go and get themselves killed. And Boko Haram are just, once again, back to their old ways. You know, they're more active now than probably what they've ever been. Yeah, it's very, uh, it's very, I know Eben Barlow is quite frustrated by the situation because 
Uh, he's, uh, as he said on this podcast before, I mean, he's open to working with the United States and, and would like to, you know, form some sort of like partnership and, you know, they can fight some really bad actors in the region. I I believe that he was also, um, stymied in, uh, Uganda when, uh, as far as going after, uh, Joe Coney and, um, we put Americans into Uganda and, uh, Joe Coney's still out there. (laughs) So, I mean. A lot can be said for that as well. You know, all these particular training schools, you know, bringing us back to Ukraine, I've seen it a number, you know, so many times it's frustrating in which these young Ukrainian lads will go to an American school or a British military school that's been set up there and they get rushed through these six, eight-week courses, sent back down to the front line, and you have some 22-year-old captain that's just stuck in a trench and, I mean, what, what is he meant to do, you know, on his own? He just did a six-week, eight-week course at best, and he's just left to it. There's, there's nothing productive about that, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's when the likes of my team used to be called in, and we would come in and we'd clear landmines out, out the way, leading to another trench. Or we'd bust the trench, or we'd just cause mayhem there, whatever it was. But we were there to support them, and they loved it, you know? And the morale of just having us there, these guys with that extra knowledge and that extra um, you know, it just it inspired them to do better as well. And that's coming back to like this mentoring phase that, that, that we just lack as military units. You know, we just lack this mentoring phase, embedding ourselves in with these guys and staying with them during the fight. It could make so much of a difference. And that's the other problem that we have. Yeah, especially... Train, you know, we can put training schools up all around the world. It doesn't really matter. When it gets down to it, when the rounds are coming down and things like that, that's when people get scared. That's when you need someone there, as we all once did, as young as young privates or as young lunch jacks. Someone was there to take your hand and say, "Don't worry about it, mate. It's normal." Yeah, yeah. But but we're not doing that now. We're pushing guys through little schools, telling them to go to the front line and deal with it. I, I fail to see how that's how that's going to make any difference. It's just a waste of time. Yeah, so and if the military can't do it hand it over to private entities that can. And I know that's, and once again, it's a very, very sticky topic. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know that I'm adamant about it because I do believe, like, you know, there are organizations like Steps that just have a proven background that can do it. You know, they can't, and they can make the difference. So why can't we sort out some partnership? Why are we so against using private entities? Now, on the opposite end of that, there's Eric Prince. Just because of his name alone, people just detest anything the guy says. Or, or you can refer back to um, our podcast about the uh, mercenary option in, in uh, operation in Yemen, um, which didn't go so well. <laughs> I mean, that's just, that was just shocking, though. I'm, I mean, I'm laughing, <laughs> sorry, but I mean, looking back at that footage, I mean, obviously I was tagged in it on the writers' chat, and I'm, you know, I'm looking at it and I'm thinking. So what's this? Because I didn't actually, you know, me being me, I didn't read what it was about. I just clicked on, clicked on it to have a look at it. And I'm just thinking, what are these fucking Hajis doing? <laughs> Only to find out that it's actually former U.S. special operations. And, you know, I, I think I went straight on to just out, out curse these people. And, and then I was like looking at the background of the individuals that were involved. And I'm sitting here. I mean, I was never special operations. When I'm, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, how the fuck did you get that so wrong? Because it went so wrong. I mean, it was so wrong 
like I said, it was laughable. Yeah, it was a mess. When we talked to Dale, he told us about, you know, like one of the guys just shooting at nothing, another guy just turning and running away. It just sounded like pandemonium out there. Um, but then going back to the Lost Heritage of Special Operations, they're out there on their own, and this is one of the clear, you know, it's one of the advantages, I guess, the likes of myself as as, as volunteers or as these people that hang around in these countries for long enough. You know, you get used to not operating with that support. You know, you have no patches, you have no decent medics, you have nothing. And I think that's the element that these former special operations guys have lost. So when they are indeed out there on their own, which is quite evident in this book and video, when they're out there on their own, they, they just lost. They just lost their head. I have no idea what went on, to be honest with you. I still look at that video. I probably look at it again today and go, I don't know what the fuck's going on. Well, that's what I love about Eben and his group is uh, they have a, a pretty good track record uh, fighting, you know, the RUF in Sierra Leone. Uh, they're fighting Unita in Angola and uh, and fighting Boko Haram. Um, and then there's some smaller operations that they did here and there that, you know, people are probably less familiar with. But um, unlike the United States military, they, they have a pretty good track record with these things. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we're just, for whatever reason, we're so against using these solutions. I mean, you have to, we have to, at some point, take the shackles off this whole mercenary. The word itself, actually, I, you know, it really pisses me off, if I'm honest. Um, well, I mean, it's, I don't, I don't think so it really, used. I don't think it really matters if you use private contractors or you use, um, you know, government service people, service men and women. I mean, if your tactics and your strategy are just fucked up from the floor up, I mean, it, it doesn't really matter what I force suppose, you use, yeah. you know. Was no, no, I can, I can agree with that, but I do think that, you know, going forward. In the future, I do believe there is, there should be, you know, the use of these companies like Steps. And yeah, maybe Steps yeah. is, you know, maybe Steps is the pinnacle in which we should all try and aspire to as private entities. You know, maybe we should, maybe we could learn a few things, read his books, and learn from the guy, mm-hmm. and then try and implement those. You know, because he gets it right. He's he's one of the organisations, as we've just said, that got it right, that gets it right. So, you know, maybe we could learn from that. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and at least try that out. But if we're not trying it out, then we're not learning. You know, if we're sticking to how we've done things for the last 15 years, I mean, I just think, I just think it's madness. Because all, all that keeps happening is history just repeats itself. You know, and we keep going from one failed campaign to another failed campaign, pulling out too early, not enough troops, not enough support, not enough this, not enough of that. You know, not enough knowledge, not enough information. You know, all of these things just, you know, it can easily spiral a lot of control, I guess, is where, where I'm going with it. Yeah. You know, we just don't have all the answers. We need to accept that as well, that the United States, the UK, France, whoever, we don't have all the answers. You know what I mean? And we need to turn to people that probably do have the answers. Or if we don't have the answers, let's try something new. You know what I mean? Let's yeah. try and think outside this conventional box that we've been so confined to and give things a go. Worst can happen is they end up as a failed campaign or a failed, you know, something that's failed. It's nothing worse than what we're doing now. Yeah, exactly. Do you know what I mean? We can't get, we can't get anywhere. Well, so we're going to, I think, leave it at that for today, Jamie. And uh, I mean, is there anything else you want to bring up before, uh, before we get going here? Um, and we'll, we can have you on again, uh, 
you know, shortly uh, to discuss some of these topics more when we update things in Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, just one last thing on the um, the Ukrainian situation. I wanted to get this point this point across a little sure. bit of a prediction of how it could potentially go in the next couple of months. So, in light of all the tensions within the Az- in the Azov Sea, um, which has deeply affected the Mariupol port and the infrastructure there, so I believe that's a play by Russia to strangle, you know, that 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 region of Ukraine. And I believe by doing so, it could cause a lot of civil unrest. And if they can do that, then they could potentially make a play to take Mariupol from the Ukrainian government. Because even in 2014 and 2015, when I was working down there with the military, it was always on their agenda to take Mariupol. So I believe they were unable to obtain it through sort of military provocation, if you like, or military aggression. So maybe now they're going to hit Mariupol economically and cause some diversions down there, if you like, between the people, have the people do a lot of, a lot of the work, and then have their separatist force come up through from Shinoka and into Mariupol and possibly take it and then seize the entire as of see themselves. That's something that I do believe is highly likely. Well, if you guys want to read more about this in depth, check out the newsrep.com. Jay's written, you know, at length about Ukraine. But the latest article as we're recording this is Ukraine timeline of events and what Russia has really been up to since 2014. As I said, check that out now at the newsrep.com. You could follow Jamie on Instagram at jread141. That's J-A-Y-R-E-A-D 141, jread141 on Instagram. And I know a lot of people are glad to have you back on board. You're one of those writers who's been missed, and now people are seeing new stuff from you every day. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much for the kind words. And, yeah, keep uh, keeping out on the Instagram. There's always some cool pics that end up on there. You do have some cool uh, pictures. He, he's got, like, very badass, you know, <laughs> just, like, pictures from overseas and, and actually, like, really well shot. And, uh, yeah, no, even if you see, I, I remember what it looks like. The, the banner for this episode is a photo that Jay has of himself, and like they're all just really cool pictures. So Jay's Instagram is worth checking out. Yeah, I mean, someone has to be the cool guy. I believe. <laughs> <laughs> but, who know, who takes all those? They look like they're yeah. from like a professional photo shoot. I mean, what can I say? You know, sometimes, <laughs> I, sometimes when a guy looks good, and, you know, there's another guy there, and he's admiring him. He goes, "I get a quick snap of that." And, um, yeah, it's one of those ones that ends up on Instagram. But like I say, I believe it was Jack that did once tell me, if you don't know what you're doing, at least look cool while you're doing it. <laughs> that so might have been I always take, take, take that away. I might look Ali as fuck on some of these photos, and people are going to go, wow, he's awesome. It's the really fir- have no idea what I'm doing. It's the first rule of SF is, is always look cool. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, I took that with me on every adventure I've been in. If I don't know what I'm doing, at least if I look cool, <laughs> people are not going to, people won't mess with that, you see. So there we go, guys. Take for everybody I, else out there. Just I'd look have cool, to, stay uh, cool. I was just saying, I'd have to dig it up uh, what number episode it was, but from a couple of years ago, if you guys want to dig back in the archives, we have a great story of when Jay was on about him waking up all of Jack Murphy's neighbors as he tried to get back into your apartment after a drunken night out. I mean, oh, are, yeah. we really not gonna, are we really not going to let this go, guys? I mean, <laughs> I wasn't going to bring it up. <laughs> 
I, okay, I'm bringing I'll, it up. Hey, it's, it's in the archives. I mean, it's on record. People could. It's it's on the internet forever. Long after all of us are here. I, I was getting uh, angry text messages from the woman that lives on the ground floor at like three in the morning, <laughs> and I'm like rolling over in bed. I'm like, what the fuck? This military-looking I mean, dude with neck tattoos is trying to get into your apartment. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, once again, I'm, you know, just for everyone else to know, I came to New York recently. I had a peaceful time. I didn't wake any neighbors up. <laughs> it was. I didn't disturb the peace, you know. It's because it, your, your old lady was with you. You're a different man. Keeping you in line. Yep. Oh, no, trust me, absolutely, boys. Because if she wasn't there, I probably would have caused chaos. Whatever I touch down in, in this world, I have to leave some form of chaos behind. It's only right, given the nature and given the background. You know, it's only right. Awesome, man. Well, great having you on, as always. We'll, we'll definitely do this again. And, and personally, I'm sorry I missed you the last time you were in New York. I know you hit me up. And I, originally, you told me you were going to be here closer to, like, this time. So I was like, all right, we'll make something happen. And then you ended up coming earlier than I expected. But... Next time you're here, we'll definitely meet up, man. No, not to, not to worry. You know, I'm not important enough. It's fine. You know, <laughs> it only squeeze me in when, when you can. It's, you know, there's, there's no hard feelings, honestly. I promise. There's no hard feelings here. Well, I'm not angry. <laughs> just disappointed. That's all. Well, next time we'll make it happen. But uh, no, thanks, Jay. Appreciate it, man. Right. No bother. Right. Take it easy, guys, and I'll speak to you all soon. All Talk right. Thanks, soon. Jamie. Okay. Ciao, 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 ciao. Great update from Jay. I know he's, you know, wanted to do that for a while with an update on Ukraine and, and we'll do it again at some point. Um Yeah, definitely. Wrapping things up here, be sure to check out Crate Club. Uh we have a lot of great stuff on the horizon. Scott Whitner and also guys like Brandon from the site are currently working on bringing you 100% custom products in 2019. Everything from sunglass cases to EDC bags and other manly products. It's a club for men. By men, you can check that all out at crateclub.us. Once again, that's crateclub.us. And as a reminder for those listening, for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to the Spec Ops channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops Channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch that content by subscribing to the Spec Ops Channel at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a limited-time offer of 50% off your membership only $4.99 a month, specopschannel.com. Once again, we hope all of you listening had a great Christmas uh, and a, a lot of appreciation from us to you guys overseas who are uh, missing out on Christmas with your families to protect us, and it's something that we always appreciate. Uh, next episode from this one, we have uh, Jared Von Dr- Jared Van Dreisch coming on, or Dreisch, Jared Van Dreisch, hopefully I'm pronouncing correctly. Um, who is a friend of one of our guys at the site, Nick Betts, who seems to have a pretty interesting background in uh, private security. He has a new book out, co-authored with uh, three other guys. It's called Public Figures, Private Lives, an Introduction to Protective Security for High Net Worth Individuals and Family Offices. So I'm looking forward to that one. All right, man. Good episode. Uh, Hope everyone had a great uh, Christmas, and uh, we'll talk again soon. 
You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.